Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in a year. Trends, debuts, world-altering events, and pop culture and film is there to reflect it all back to us generations down the line. Welcome to the A Year in Film podcast, presented by Hollywood Suite. I'm your host, Becky Shrimpton. And today, I'm joined by film and content specialist Cam Maitland and writer, director, and podcaster Emily Gagné. The relationship between a producer-director is as crucial as any other in the film industry. This is especially true in 70s, early 80s independent cinema. Teaming up with a producer that not only understood the director's vision, but also the process the director required to produce their best work was crucial to success. What's interesting is how many big-named male directors who we think of as auteurs were facilitated and made a lot of their best movies when they were paired with female producers. Think Polly Platt and Peter Bogdanovich, or Kathleen Kennedy with Spielberg and Lucas and Zemeckis. To start off today, we're going to look at another producer we don't talk nearly enough about, but without her and her collaborations with John Carpenter, you don't get some of the greatest horror movies of all time, and you don't get Laurie Strode, who we love. Emily, why do you love Deborah Hill? Well, I do love Deborah Hill partially because she is responsible for her Laurie Strode. She worked with John Carpenter on many of his like initial feature films. Like uh, she worked on with him on Halloween. They co-wrote it together and she also produced it. Um, but before that, she worked with him on Assault on Precinct 13. She was a script, script supervisor um, and an assistant editor, I believe, on that film. And they sort of had a personal connection, not just like in terms of their professional um, vibe, but they actually were together for a period of time. Um, and then I think that that sort of bred a larger professional relationship where they like co-wrote the fog together, um, as well as the escape movies, uh, New York and LA. Uh, and then she produced some of the Halloween sequels with him because obviously they were connected to that. But anyways, she brings like, I think a female presence to some of his earlier works where I feel like the female characters, as we'll see when we talk about the fog are like a little bit more well-rounded and interesting and real feeling. And there's more to do. And then you get to some of his later works like John Carpenter's Vampires, you know, or Mouth of Madness, which we discussed last season, where let's say that the, some of the female characters are lacking when you could have had actually some really interesting ways to go with the material. Yeah, like it's like with Halloween, I think like there's a lot of cliche moments in it. And of course, we see like women in underwear like we do in every other movie, which is male mm -hmm. gaze. And that's John Carpenter. But the dialogue between the women in that movie like actually feels like two teen girls talking to each other which is something that I think makes me and has made me love Halloween for so long um also I feel like I don't know for a lot of like horror fans that are women like Deborah Hill was one of the first names that I saw come up like on screen when I was look like watching the credits of a horror movie and so I was like who is this and like could I be her 
you know, was kind of my feeling. But I'm with you that often you get this feeling of, especially for these women who are like way behind the camera, that you're like, okay, what exactly do they do? What is the facilitation? And it's only recently we're really finding out because of um, different documentaries and her best friends, people like Jamie Lee Curtis, are coming out and talking about what her contributions to these things actually were. Otherwise, we wouldn't have any of it. Yeah. Well, and if you look at some of the other films that she worked on, like, I feel like she really knows how to create, like, an environment. Like, another movie she produced is Clue, which, like, that is, like, a perfectly cast, perfectly, like, production-designed movie. And she's, like, part of that whole process. She also worked on The Dead Zone, Adventures in Babysitting, which is a personal favorite of mine, not in the horror genre. (laughs) Um, But she did, like, The Fisher King. Like, she, like, I, I think, I really think some of, Carpenter's strongest works are with Deborah Hill. And I think it like you can't not attribute some of the success to Deborah. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's also worth saying that I think the Carpenter attributes it to her too. He's he's actually been pretty good about it. Cause I think sometimes with somebody like Polly Platt, for instance, yeah. I think that the fallout <laughs> kind of uh ruined the relationship between the people. But I think Carpenter and her still seem okay with each other and they do interviews and stuff and they're like very mutual admiration i mean he's kind of a crank it's funny i i there's a great uh blank check is doing a big carpenter series and they're talking about the follow between him and dean cundy and it's like <laughs> dean cundy seems like the nicest guy but obviously there's some beef between them that will it's like well he's just got to apologize to me <laughs> like oh boy but it seems I, like deborah hill and him are actually still pretty like friendly yeah well, we lost deborah hill recently of course mm-hmm. uh, to, yeah. unfortunately to breast cancer but uh but up until the point where she where we yeah. lost her she uh she was yeah it seemed like they were still buddies and yeah, um, yeah. and they continued to work together but not in a like stockholm syndrome sort of no. way like it yeah. seems like platt and bogdanovich were yeah i mean to get into it it, it seems like they had a relationship dissolution quite similar to Platt and Bogdanovich, mm-hmm. whereas Carpenter started uh, dating Adrian Barbeau uh, after working with her. So, yeah, it's like... <laughs> yeah. Not, I, 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 nobody really knows, I think, what went on, but... Uh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's hard. I've, like, I... Being a horror nerd, I've been like, look, I've looked into it very like mm-hmm. hard, and I've been like, what is the timeline here? Like, because apparently Adrian Barbeau and John Carpenter were together in 1979, and, mm. like, uh, what was uh, Assault, I think, was 1976. So, like, that's a mm. pretty small window for him and yeah. Deborah to have been together. But, I, like, I don't, I don't know. So, I, I'm always yeah. curious. Adrian, yeah. about it, it seems it's, like they weren't together, I will say, based on the way Adrian Barbeau tells it. Yeah. Uh, but who knows? Who yeah, knows? Adrian Barbeau has said in interviews that, and I don't want to get too deep down the go- gossip rabbit no, hole, but no, apparently, yeah. like, And he, there's no point because yeah. it seems like they're all friends and they all like yeah, each other, yeah, so whatever. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, she's basically said that, like, it was a mutual attraction that they tried to hold off of while they were working together, but then as soon as they were done working together, they oh, yeah. together. So it's we, a very charming yeah. story where he, like, took her out for dinner and she thought he was going to give her a script, and he's like, I'm in love with you. Yeah. And she's like, oh, good, I'm in love with you, too. All right, yeah. What's the, oh, my gosh, I'm now I'm trying to remember the two people that uh oh god it's it's what's his face that's vision uh and um you know dark city lady they they were just like super in love with each other on set and oh jennifer Con- <laughs> dark city lady jennifer yeah, Connelly. Paul Bettany and jennifer Connelly. <laughs> anyway they they were super in love with each other on set and then it, on 9 11 
they never dated or anything. And on 9-11, he called her and just said, like, I'm in love with you. <laughs> She's like, oh, I'm in love with you. And then they, like, got married, wow. basically. That's yeah, really yeah. Lovely. And they've been married ever since, and they're a great couple. But it was just, like, it took, he was, he thought that the world was, like, ending. And he's like, oh, I'm in love with you. Wow. <laughs> That's maybe it. too much of an aside. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I am totally into it. Well, let's get into our first film today. So on a press tour for Assault on Precinct 13, Carpenter and Hill ended up in the UK. And while there, they, of course, visited the center of spooky spirituality, Stonehenge. The fog rolled in and an idea was born. Carpenter wanted to make The Fog a menacing character and Hill was along for the ride, this time recruiting not just Jamie Lee Curtis, but also her mother, Janet Lee, alongside a host of other memorable townsfolk to be slaughtered in the wake of leprous oceanic zombie ghosts bent on revenge, I think. <laughs> The Fog. Emily, what's this one about? Well, uh, you kind of hinted at it right there. Um, <laughs> but there's this this town, Antonio Bay. I also feel like I have to use a radio voice because uh, one of the lead characters <laughs> in this film is uh, a radio host. But anyways, Antonio Bay is having their 100th anniversary of their founding. And uh, the reverend, played by Hal Holbrook, uh, comes across a diary of his grandfather's, which sort of details the true history of what had happened in in founding Antonio Bay. And it turns out that some of the uh, ancestors basically like uh, took down this boat full of uh, lepers that were trying to create a new colony because they didn't want this leper colony. Um, And because of this, on this 100th anniversary, when the fog starts rolling in, the ghosts of these people that were on the boat, of these pirates, I suppose, uh, come out and uh, start killing people, including uh, coming after Stevie Wayne, who is the radio host played by Adrian Barbeau. I love her voice. She's just so sexy the whole time. Even if you do have something to do, keep me turned on for a while. I'll try my best to do the same for you. A real version of somebody who is in the uh, California area oh. at the time. A, la- a lady DJ. She's she's like doing kind of an impression. I've seen this movie so many times because I it's my, like one of my like in the background movies that I always really mm. enjoy because it's very soothing in a weird way. Like it's a melodic ghost story. Um, but I always think of this as a New England movie and it's not. It's a California movie because mm. I do not think of, of California as like misty, eerie. Uh, well, Maybe I'm going apparently, to yeah. I I kind of agree, but apparently where they shot it in Inverness, California is known as the second foggiest place in America. Wow. They literally shot it in a foggy town. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. It's uh, and it's interesting. I also I agree with you because the other weird thing is they set the um, remake in Oregon. Uh, on an island in Oregon. So they they even obviously are like, well, nobody thinks Northern California is foggy. But well, we'll apparently. Weird. Well, we'll go into the remake just a hair. I did watch like half of it. Oh, it I, sucks. I, got yeah, it. I, yeah, I couldn't make it through the whole I'll thing. I'll go into it. It um, sucks. <laughs> oh, good. Because I do want to talk about those 2000s remakes in general because there's something kind of mm. fascinating that I think they all try to do. Um, but uh, as we kind of get into this, now no one making this seems to understand why it has the cult following that it does. Do you guys agree with that like is this a solid watch yeah i mean i like it but i do think it's quite interesting because you you get the impression that just about everybody involved kind of doesn't think that the final product is well i I think that it will get into it probably but they did do a lot of reshoots and kind of reshaping after the fact and i also know that carpenter really thought his first cut didn't work uh so it's like it's interesting because i kind of think it it didn't please anybody but i think it's a pretty good movie yeah i agree like i 
I like the mood of this movie, which I think is kind of what you were getting at, Becky, where it's like, it's just like, I like the visuals. I like the spooky vibe of it. But does the story fully land? I'm not really sure. And I get you get the impression and we know for a fact, actually, that like there was pressure to make it scarier and gorier Mm -hmm. because of the success of Halloween and the success of sort of the like the emergence of the slasher um, Mm -hmm. genre. So like I think if it had stuck to being like a straightforward ghost story, like without going there, maybe it would have been more successful. But I understand why they maybe were afraid to go in that direction. And I, I also get the impression that like this was more of like a, no pun intended, like a foggy sort of idea of Carpenters yeah. that mm-hmm. wasn't like really fully realized. And maybe it wasn't, wasn't fleshed out, if you will. Uh, yes. <laughs> uh, I think that the good way that I heard it put, which I think is how it works, is Deborah Hill said it was more more of a suspense movie than a horror movie. Yeah, and it's interesting because I think they they cite their inspiration is the Trollenberg Terror, which in America was called the Crawling Eye, mm-hmm. which is a very kind of similar movie. It's in in a Swiss uh, resort on a mountain, and there's like a creepy eye creature that comes out of the fog and attacks people. Uh, but I also think the interesting thing to me is this film feels a lot more like uh, the original version of the thing, which yeah. is a lot of opening a door and there's something behind it. So it, I, it's it's a very 50s, and he loves Howard Hawks, yeah. and there's a lot of Howard Hawks touches here, and I think that that kind of is what works. And I do wonder how... Um, like how moody the original was because i think that, that you still see some of that stuff some of those more like like the haunting style scares like the weird board that drips water and stuff oh yeah um yeah and and just knowing what they but then at the same time you know that they added all the kind of poltergeisty effects at the start of the movie uh, in post, uh, like in reshoots. So yeah, it's kind of interesting. It's hard to know what they were after and why they're so disappointed. Well, the original movie or the original cut was only 80 minutes, which is one of the reasons mm-hmm. they had to pad this out. So I think you are correct. This was like a, a premise they hadn't totally thought out. But one of the things I love that they added, which generally when they add stuff to pad things out, that tends to be people's least favorite parts of movies. I love the opening with the old man, like telling these kids mm-hmm. a ghost story because, and the yeah. way he shoots it, which is, I mean, that's what he's good at. You are there with the kids listening to this ghost story and it's like, oh yes, I'm about to be spooked and I'm so excited. And that's a place in horror we don't often get to be let into in that way very often. Most horror movies just start with like a big grotesque moment and you're like, oh, I'm scared. Now I'm going to get scared more. This is like, hey, here's some atmosphere and we're just going to glide in. Enjoy. And I love that. 11.55, almost midnight enough time for one more story it's also stylistically a lot like halloween which i think is interesting makes it of a piece like especially that dangling watch is a lot like the pumpkin at the start of halloween yes and and so you're suddenly like ah yes a john carpenter film and and it's funny because yeah that's such a great i mean john houseman is the man selling the story he's such a great classic actor but then it's also funny because you kind of hear carpenter and it's like they added that just because the original cut the story didn't make any sense so they're like here's a man explaining the story start (laughs) at the start of the movie but it sounds like a ghost story Yeah. Well, it's part yeah. of it because the creatures don't speak. And I think this is mm-hmm. another like 
pretty solid up until this point Carpenter thing where you have these immutable shapeless creatures or just the shape or shapes in the fog like Michael Myers who you don't know why they're doing it they just are coming on and they cannot be stopped and while that works incredibly well in Halloween because he's just this relentless killing machine here it becomes a little more opaque because it's like, okay, they offer too many solutions of like, okay, are they trying to kill the original founders? They descend the original founders. Are they just trying to kill six people? Why do they kill the nanny? The poor, poor nanny, you know, like, um, what exactly are they trying to do? Do they just want their gold back? Why do they come back and slaughter hell? I uh, feel like I got no problem with, with that part. Cause the, the remake <laughs> does very strictly adhere to, they are killing the descendants. Oh yes. yes. And I think that there's, but yeah, I think that that's weird. Cause it's like, okay, so they're killing Killing six people who gives a shit <laughs> to be honest like and, and, and but this one is kind of cool <laughs> yeah this one is good because it's just like an indiscriminate fog bank and like when it rolls over it will kill you even though it's like you can kind of get away with not answering the door <laughs> i think if you just hung out in your house and didn't answer the door you might not get killed yeah you'd be fine you'd be it, fine it might be more interesting if like there was like a this wasn't like a one-time thing where it's like every year he t- they take six people and are you going to be the six one of the six this year but it's just mm-hmm. this one time and you know they look a little bit goofy like i like like i like a part of me finds them spooky but they're also goofy with the red eyes yeah. so it's it's like it's a little bit too much i feel like this movie maybe did a little too much when it needed to like pull back and then i would have been all in um, you know, I remember the first time I saw this movie, though, and the makeup job on the corpse that they find in the boat oh that comes God. to life. The the makeup job on that corpse with the like the no eyes and the like he is real cool. This is a, an early design. Rob Botin, and, yes, and he al- he also plays the main pirate because he's like uh, six. He was like six four, six three, six yeah, four. Yes, yeah. yes. I think that's part of why he got the job. If I remember Carpenter <laughs> saying he like stood up and he was like, "Oh, mama." Yeah, this is actually a, <laughs> an interesting. Uh, yeah. An interesting movie because it has all these people. Uh, Rob Bocine, it has Tommy Lee Wallace doing the set design, who went on to direct the It miniseries. Like it's it's just kind of a weird collection of people who did more. And I mean, obviously the cast is crazy. It's got Janet Lee, it's got uh, Adrian Barbeau, it's got Jamie Lee Curtis, it's got Tom Atkins, all of the people who went on to do more and more horror stuff through the but 80s. But at this point, Jamie Lee Curtis and Adrian Barbeau were kind of not doing well. You'd think that Halloween mm. would have launched It's still Janet- weirdly early in Adrian Barbeau's career. Yeah. Because she was kind of a stage and a TV person. Well, she was known for Maud. She was the women's mm. lib, which I just watched the first season of Maud because I was curious yeah. about it. It is a fascinating show. Um, but uh, yeah, she was known got for that. got canceled because Maud gets an abortion. That's, That's all right. I know about Maud. <laughs> <laughs> it's, an inter- it's an interesting show. Um, and also, if you're a big B. Arthur fan, it is a must, mm. must watch. Um, but yeah, she played the daughter on that who was like very like woman's lib mm. and emphatic. Mm. And um, apparently that made her hard to cast because everyone just saw her as this character and those characters weren't really showing up in film. And so she ended up doing a made-for-TV movie with Carpenter, which is where they fell in love. Mm -hmm. Um, And then he wrote this for her to be like, okay, well, let's show other people what you can do. And I really like what she gets to do. She gets a lot to do Yeah, Mm -hmm. for someone who is stuck in a single room. Oh, yeah. Yeah. She's she's awesome in this movie. Like, Stevie Wayne, number one, great name. Stevie Wayne, like, just... Just excellent. It's like Laurie Strode. It just like rolls right off the tongue. You can't forget it. And but like I like her character. She's like an kind of an independent woman, but she's got a kid and she's like working and she's doing her thing. And like and she ultimately defends herself. 
which I like. Mm-hmm. Like one of my complaints about this movie as well as like the Jamie Lee Curtis character is sort of like second fiddle to Tom Atkins. Like they're like they're kind of equals, but they're kind of not. And I I don't know. Like I I they're I do like that she's just as horny as he is. Oh yeah. <laughs> Very it's, into that. Oh, she's a fun character. And yeah. it's a good way to kind of knock her. Because I mean, we're talking about this is the same year as prom night, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's cool to because she she was an adult still playing teenagers. It's the same year as Terror Train, too, I think. So it's like it's this is a great way to kind of shoehorn into a more adult role, I think. Yeah, and um, I do feel like the parts that Carpenter does give her like are a little bit more layered. I'm just saying, I don't, I don't know. I think maybe be- because of the precedent that I had from the yeah. other movies, I just was like, this is a- no, oh, it's s- fair. It's fair. She's just kind of a side character. She She's one of the, and her and Tom Atkins kind of just goof around and yeah. bumble through this fog. They're not very active, which I kind of like in a way because that mm-hmm. feels more like realistic. Than- they get it. They're, yeah. they're the only people that know what is going on. Really? Yeah. Um, this is also yeah. one of the things that I kind of love about this movie is that it is a be- it is a before cell phone movie, and so mm-hmm. literally they're just listening to Adrian Barbeau telling them what to do on the radio. But her suspense is she has no idea if anyone's hearing her or doing what she needs yeah. them to do. But they are getting instructions; they are trying to do the thing well, that she needs them to. And I kind of like that. I think it's. Funny. I saw a good comment, and it was even pre-COVID. But somebody was saying it, it uh, was an interesting look at essential workers during a crisis because they're like yeah. she essentially has to make the hard choice to leave her child behind because yeah. she knows that it's important that she tell people what's happening. Yeah. Uh, and that's like kind of crazy. Yeah. Cause she's <laughs> like a single mom who leaves her child in danger. And she even knows that the house is going to be enveloped in fog and can't do anything about it. But she knows that it's important for her to keep going. Um, and they end up again. Another thing that's wild was a reshoot was that like the ending is so suspenseful because of her being on top of that lighthouse. Yeah. Um, and that was a reshoot, which is kind of crazy because it's like, oh, is, was that not the ending? Because that's, that's like the best part. Yeah, the best <laughs> I agree. Part, yeah. yeah, yeah. I was gonna say like I love that final showdown between her mm. and like you're like every time I watch it, I'm like she's gonna fall, she's gonna fall, she's gonna fall, but mm. she doesn't. She doesn't fall. I also like that they don't make her do it in heels. Like everything is very (laughs) practical. That's good. That's good too. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of the cool thing is everybody's kind of a tells it like it is kind of exhausted person. And I mean, I love that Janet Lee is in this movie partially because she's a Halloween super fan, which is great. (laughs) And apparently when she saw Halloween for the first time, she like ran up to John Carpenter and said, I hope you have good roles for middle-aged ladies. <laughs> and that, so he like kind of crafted something with her in mind. And she gets to have a lot of fun as this like town council woman who's kind of bad, but mostly exhausted. Better get the estimates ready for the council meeting next month. Yes, ma'am. Sandy, you're the only person I know who can make yes, ma'am sound like screw you. Yes, ma'am. Okay, if I were going to be any character, I am definitely that one. <laughs> but I appreciate that she understands that she's like incredibly high strung and she is yes. apologizing for beha- her behavior, but she's like... But I'm doing it anyway because things have to get done. Yeah. This is a movie about women who get things done. And I kind mm. of like that. I agree. And her relationship with her assistant is so good. So it's funny. like, honey, I hate you, but let's keep going. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, you won't have to deal with me anymore soon. Don't worry about it. You can go home, yeah. have a nap. It'll be fine. <laughs> such a such a crazy movie. And, and I mean, that's the interesting thing is it's like, there's maybe too many characters, but all the characters are so 
well made and like like Hal Hal Holbrook is so great. They were like, we just wanted like reverse Mark Twain, where he's like a drunk who thinks America is terrible. I almost <laughs> didn't recognize him with all that facial hair. I was like, oh, that is Hal Holbrook. Like they mm. really hit him behind. I think all he that still stuff. has the Mark Twain look from yeah. when he was doing it. Yeah. That's yeah. so funny. Okay, we have to talk about the character names here because there's a few names that oh, listeners yeah. <laughs> might recognize, like Dan O'Bannon, Nick Castle, and of course, Dr. Fives is the name of the yes. coroner. That's yeah. just wild that you would be able, but I guess at the time, people wouldn't necessarily be as familiar with those names unless they were super fans. They couldn't just go on IMDb and go like, mm-hmm. who was Dan O'Bannon? No, he wrote Alien and the deeply bizarre Dark Star. And I mean, some of it I think is is also like, yeah, Dan O'Bannon at the time was probably mostly Dark Star. That one of the characters is Tommy Wallace. Tommy Lee Wallace at the time was just a guy who worked on this crew. And it's like, yeah, weird. weird. I mean, there's a lot of interesting touches. Like, this is Carpenter is like, at the time, he's like, this is my chance to uh, make an EC Comics movie. And that's like the lighting. And it's like, oh, but then he made Creep Show. So it's like, nobody thinks of this anymore as his chance to do a Tales from the Crypt. Because he did a, like, a Tales from the Crypt. And same with the- Dean Cundy, like... Yeah, the lighting is crazy in this movie, but obviously they did much crazier lighting in Creepshow. Here's the thing, though, that I love about Carpenter that I really wish any of these things had taken off. He is so obsessed with anthologies and they never seem to work out. Like Halloween mm-hmm. 3, everyone was like, where is Michael Myers? It's like, no, no, no. He's trying to make a series of anthology movies. People didn't get it. Same with um, this one. He wanted a series of like fog-based movies where the fog <laughs> was the villain and all wow. of them. No, and I'm like, that. I kind of would have liked to see that. That's kind of fun. And it's unfortunate because television in the 70s didn't do that like it does now, right? Like mm. now it's all anthology series or like miniseries because that's how I mean, they, they did year. the one-offs like your gallery of terror. Or what, what is that? Night gallery. Yeah. <laughs> or like <laughs> Uh, yeah. Twilight Zone I, or whatever. Yes. Whatever. Yeah. That kind of one-offs, which I've I've heard uh, American Horror Stories is quite good. So maybe it's back. I've uh, But it. yeah. 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 It's yeah. good. It's, I, it's uh, fine. <laughs> Recommendation. I, uh, uh, yes. Uh, but yeah, I, I mean, I'm interested. I, I like that a lot of people noted that he really hated his acting because uh, he's Carpenter shows up as just a guy in the church, which I think is fine. But when you bring up the anthology thing is Carpenter's best acting is in Body Bags yes. where he's the, the weird coroner. <laughs> like essentially, because I think he just admits like, hey, I look like a crypt keeper. I love that me. movie. That movie's that, great. Yeah. Like that, that, fun. that is an encapsulation of the fun that he can have. And I think sure. like maybe that's the problem here is like this movie like is trying to be fun, but it's not fun. like it, it's not striking the right balance, you know, but mm-hmm. but God, mm-hmm. I just have to mention because I know we're going to eventually move on. But like the score to the fog, like it's the, real good. Oh, like th- the thing is, I like if you're a horror fan, you, you know this, but like I don't know if like the average show, like, you know, movie fan knows that John Carpenter like did the scores for many of his films. And like now that's kind of the thing that he talks about the most. He tours playing the scores to his mm, films mm-hmm. um and i feel like the fog for me is one of my favorites of his scores like i i feel like it is so spooky like it's it's perfectly spooky and it captured i feel like if the movie matched that vibe fully then it would be like one of my favorite movies ever made you know i also really love the fact that in the credits it is the score is composed by john carpenter but is electronically realized by somebody else yeah <laughs> oh, i yeah. think it's delightful 
yeah i mean it's, it's i i love all that stuff and i mean it's, it sounds like he redid the score quite a few times too with this kind of weird going back and forth and yeah i don't know it's interesting that you can feel that they felt like they were on the cusp of horror changing too because deborah hill really cites scanners i guess yeah pushing them to make more even though it's i st- it's funny because they're like we added violence i'm like there's not really any blood or gore that's that, that one worm face but that's about the it eye gouging specifically is mm. i think what she was talking about them people getting poked in the eyes which is you know gross C- could be gory is what i'm saying <laughs> <laughs> i saw Thanks, halloween yeah. halloween's pretty gory no he eats not. a dog Oh, he eats a dog, guys. <laughs> um, okay, I want to touch briefly on the remake and like 2000s remakes mm-hmm. in general, just briefly, because as Cam explained earlier, like it gives, it, it narrows down the plot more and tries to make mm-hmm. it make sense more and does not succeed in the process. But all of these 2000 remakes seem to be doing that. Like the one for My Bloody Valentine, like goes really deep into like I the mean, mythology of the minor. Like it's really interesting. That was like, a mess. I would give mess. The Fog 2005 over My Bloody Valentine. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> is that a big, oh, this is a point of contention. No, right. no, no. I, I actually don't hate the My Bloody Valentine remake, but I think it's okay. really dumb. I think it's extremely stupid. I, I loved it when it was available in 3D in theaters, oh, I will yeah. say. It, it had the most fun with 3D of any of that era of 3D. That's it. Like, I feel like it used the 3D properly, but The mm-hmm. Fog, I actually, like, I put off watching The Fog remake until we were doing this episode because I was like, mm. I've heard such bad things. And it was as bad as promised. It was real rough. And I was like, John yeah. and Deborah, you attached yourself to this? Okay. Well, for the paycheck. Okay, uh, I have a fantastic Carpenter quote, if like, I may, yeah, about like, this. I'm sure you have so, a good one because he only has good quotes about his remake. About producing and things. So he says, I'm just a producer on this. I just sit home and watch basketball games on TV. These guys go out and make this movie. It's designed to be a PG-13 film. Horror has really changed a lot. It used to be a lot much more hardcore. Today, it's drifting towards PG-13 and, you know, getting girls in and girls don't like yucky stuff. You know what I mean. And I'm like, sorry, what? I'm like, I'm on board and think the first half is very funny and I'm good for you just taking the paycheck, which I know you did for like the Halloween remake, et cetera, et cetera. But like the second half, girls don't like yucky stuff. And how many women did you have working on your stuff? How many women love Laurie Strode? Like, really? Yeah. I mean, I think that was when he was in a particularly cranky time. He's much more chill <laughs> now that he's discovered Xbox gaming and weed. <laughs> but uh, but I also think, yeah, he he has a million quotes about, like, how do you feel about this remake? And he's like, I feel fine as long as the check clears. Like, yeah. he, he does not. It's actually shocking, like, the amount David Gordon Green has gotten him involved in these Halloween. Because he, he just doesn't want to do it anymore. He, he's he's out. He likes making music with his son. Yeah. He likes smoking weed. And he likes playing Xbox. Yeah. his uh, He's got a great one about the Hall- the Rob Zombie Halloween remake. When asked about his involvement was, he stu- he said, I stuck out my hand. I took the check. I closed <laughs> yes. my hand. I walked away. <laughs> yes. Like- and I will say, the, the, like, the, the remake remake of the fog is not without merit i think selma blair is quite good as stevie wayne she um, is. that's yeah. good casting yeah and like i don't know tom welling is a you know a golden a retriever of a man he's fine <laughs> <laughs> yeah but uh yeah it, it still has some fun and it preserves a lot of the good stuff from like i think maggie grace does have a lot of that vibe of jamie lee curtis's character and yeah it just isn't quite and like i say i mean carpenter even talks about the plot holes of like, are they just killing the descendants or not? 
uh, and they they deal with it. So there's something. But you're right. They go hard with the PG-13, uh, which was a choice, and it, it doesn't really pay off. just wanted to tell a fun story about John Carpenter before we sure. move on, which is that I met him once, uh, and it was at one of these concerts uh, that he's doing recently, playing all the, the hits. And uh, I was wearing a shirt that said Jamie Lee Curtis, and as I came up, he said, Jamie Lee! And I was like, does this man have the capacity to be excited about something? Like, I was just like, <laughs> I was shocked. And he was actually very nice because I thought he might be a grump. And I said to him, I said, you know, when I saw Deborah Hill's name up there next to yours, I was like, I can make horror movies. And he was like, well, then get to it. And like, oh, he looked I at me it. and it was cute. And I was like, you know what? I think he's he is a grump. But is ultimately a softy underneath it all, and you know, just just wants to get his, you know, He's exactly. Just- no. If you want, uh, the pro tip I have learned from a uh, a horror person is get him talking about college basketball, oh, no. which he will ta- he will talk your ear off, and then you just insert some horror questions, yeah. <laughs> and he'll answer whatever you want. You just need to butter him up a bit with with non horror related stuff. Yeah, beautiful. All right, well, we're going to be continuing on our horror journey. Uh, we're going to come straight to Canada and get aboard the death ship. That's coming up after the break. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. When we decided to do 1980s Death Ship, I expected a ghost story on a ship with some Poseidon adventure elements. I didn't expect to be genuinely disturbed. But that's one of the things that I love about Canadian tax shelter horror. Although a lot of it is utter schlock, sometimes it ends up being schlock with shock. It was also a pleasant surprise to see one of my favorite Canadian actresses, Kate Reed, who never phones it in. That should have been my first tip-off. This was a movie someone made in earnest. A word of warning before we start, this isn't just a ship full of ghosts, it's a ship full of Nazi torture ghosts. Cam, are you all aboard the death ship? <laughs> uh, yes and no. Okay. <laughs> yes, uh, but no, it's a it's a strange movie. I think it's like an interesting oddity that I would definitely recommend to people. Um, I, we'll talk about it in the uh, upcoming season of the show, but 1980 is kind of an interesting year for the tax shelter because 1979 was the largest amount of films produced under the CDFC during the tax shelter era. So you're reaching kind of critical mass. We've talked about in previous weeks of the podcast 
podcast that there was all these weird dealings, <laughs> the, your Dennis Hopper situations. Uh, they were just trying to move people around. And this is actually a pretty great example of them successfully kind of laundering various talent uh, into a technically Canadian, uh, like the least Canadian as possible while still maintaining Canadianness uh, film. So I kind of love it in that respect. But uh, Death Ship as a, a story is, uh, yeah, kind of a classic disaster movie uh, setup uh, where you have classic disaster movie actor George Kennedy yes. uh, as as a captain of a ship, uh, Captain Ashland. He is three days from retirement, also a beautiful touch. Uh, and it's quite quickly obvious that everyone hates him. Uh, he is a uh, like a real commanding asshole. He's uh, on a cruise ship. He's a captain. He hates being on a cruise ship. I don't know what he wants. I guess it's the kind of era where maybe he had been in like a war and wants that kind of ship. Um, his uh, second in command, uh, played by Richard Crenna, who people, he's on the cusp of uh, being famous for the various Rambos. Uh, <laughs> he uh, is is going to take over and he's actually happy to be on a cruise ship. Uh, his wife and children are there. And it's kind of like, it's kind of, I think that there's going to be a handoff on this cruise where he becomes the captain and the, the other captain steps, sets down. Uh, not very far in, they have a little nice little dinner, and then they are immediately rammed by a mysterious ship, and rammed apparently so hard and so fast that they cannot even turn out of the way, and it just destroys their ship entirely. Uh, and so a a gaggle of uh, people, including the entire family of the new captain, him and his wife and his two children, uh, a strange religious woman who is Kate Reed, uh, a horny young couple, uh, and then suddenly out of the water uh, comes George Kennedy still alive uh, they all are on a lifeboat and while they're floating along uh, suddenly a mysterious ship appears and uh, they are they come aboard and it takes a while <laughs> number one none of them ever think it's haunted which is, boggles the mind Entirely. every review says it because <laughs> the amount of haunted shit immediately happening on this ship is wild oh, yeah. uh, but they decide to just hang out <laughs> and live their lives uh, and slowly stuff gets more and more menacing and as you say the last half hour of this movie uh turns incredibly creepy yeah. it, it's a bit of a slow-paced film I, I like i say i don't think it's perfect but something about that last half it is, is so real upsetting. upsetting and screwed up and scary to be honest yeah. like i think that there's i've, I've kind of I, I don't have a set theory i think i started a letterbox list actually of films that are like slightly incompetent in a way that makes them a lot more scary <laughs> and i think that a lot of direct-to-video horror has this yeah. where like either you can't tell it's like sometimes it's the like is this a snuff film and sometimes it's just like this is the product of a tortured mind, <laughs> you know, like, uh, and, and that's kind of here. And I mean, you, I will go into it, but you kind of know that this shoot was unpleasant. Everyone was miserable and that energy is kind of there. And then honestly, the truth is that they, they don't make this goofy Nazis. No. This is very scary, real Nazis who oh, are yeah. doing realistic Terrible Nazi things. stuff. Yeah. And even though George Kennedy is a weird, possessed Nazi man, you're kind of afraid of it in the same way. It's, he it's is weird. so intense in this. That final, I know, mm. okay, there's a great He's not quote. phoning it in either. No, and that's what, this is what I thought was so odd, is that there's a New York Times review uh, quote that I was like, oh my goodness, where they said, a hapless cast headed by George Kennedy 
who gives a much better performance in his current television painkiller ad than he does here. <laughs> I don't agree with that. I really don't. I think that back I mean, end when he's going silly. bonkers is intense. Yeah, it's silly. Like, it's it's all kind of silly. Oh, my gosh. I'm just looking at the IMDb, and it says <laughs> featuring Adolf Hitler as himself. Oh, which is, uh, oh Apropos of nothing. But, uh... <laughs> um, uh uh, yeah, but no, I think he's really given it. And it, it's a goofy premise, I guess, if you're in it for goofiness. And it might also be the opposite where I find I, I saw the fog in theaters and it was a real delight. And I think actually played a lot better than on TV. And I wonder if Death Ship in theaters might seem a little threadbare and a little goofy and over the top. I don't know. Maybe. This is a movie, though, I can totally see doing incredibly well in the VHS market, especially because that poster is so good and has been mm. ripped off so many other times of, like, the ship coming through the water, which has, like, the skull on its hull, and it's real mm. cool looking. Yeah, I like it. But, yeah, they use that for, um, oh, what's the, the other ghost one? Ghost Ship. Yeah, ghost Ship, that's it, which doesn't have the same premise, but kind of, but not really. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, that poster, I mean, like, people would have, that would have just flown off the shelves in, uh, in the video store, right? Like, kids would have been like, that one. Oh, yeah. I'd seen the posters for, like, ever and never watched it. Like, this was my first watch of it. Um, Even though we've had it on Hollywood 2 for a while, I've been curious because mm-hmm. I do love, like, Ghost Shape is not good, but... No, I, that opening that open, The opening. Yeah. Oh, yeah, the opening's incredible. And I, 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 I feel like... Becky, I feel like you and I are gonna bond over this, but I like like a like a seaside or like a like a ship bound <laughs> horror film. Give sure. me a cruise ship movie where people sure. are dying and yes. I'm the happiest woman. Triangle, <laughs> deep it's, rising. It's yeah. the They're most all... inescapable thing, right? Cabin in the woods, you get in the truck, you're good, you get somewhere, but you're in the middle of the freaking ocean and you're trapped. I'm very into it. Oh yeah, yeah, I'm I'm with you 100. percent It's like and it, it clued into me while I was watching this. I was like, this is why I like Jason Tate. Manhattan so much because uh. the majority of the movie is on a boat and it doesn't take, even think of that. Yeah. Doesn't take place in Manhattan at all, and that's why people complain. But meanwhile, I'm like, yeah, this is what I want to see. <laughs> Keep it going. Like, I love uh, it. I- I love it, too. I think the biggest point of contention, I mean, they really are kind of giving people what they want, even for a movie that's this slow. Like, you got your, Mm. like, there's so much. I just recently watched The Poseidon Adventure, which is why I know how much of this is taken from The Poseidon Adventure. And, like, the first, like, 20 minutes, half an hour straight from Poseidon Adventure, including the kids, like, everything else. But then Definitely the makeup of the people is very Poseidon Adventure. Totally. And then it transforms into its own thing. And I don't know why that is. Like, if they were like, okay, we're not going to do a straight ripoff. Now we're just going to transform. But you get, like, you get boobs, you get bush. So, you know, mm-hmm. the teen kids are there for it. Even though it's someone dying horrifically in a oh my God. blood shower. And, and I heard, yeah, I, I, I'll review I read that was contemporaneous said, this must be the longest nude scene in horror history. <laughs> because she's just stuck screaming nude for, like, probably three minutes in real time. Dude, so much so if you look on IMDb, her photo for IMDb is her covered yeah, in blood screaming, shower. Yeah. <laughs> like, well, Victoria maybe it means she liked the role. Yeah, uh, it's probably what she's known for. It's I, probably like, yeah. do you just cover yourself in blood? I think I recognize you. <laughs> just yes. like Hitler's known for this film. Oh my uh, gosh. I, uh, but I think the... Like, I think what you're feeling, Becky, is a lot... What Quentin Tarantino talks about is, like, the real um, exploitation-style movies are all about you're essentially killing time for an hour, (laughs) and then you spend your whole budget and, uh, like, shoot your whole shot. 
and, and this movie especially had um it, it's doing the old Corman thing where the crash at the start of the movie is from another film. Yes. All that footage of the ships colliding is, is just cut together and they knew that. So they knew that they had their opening kind of excitement and then they saved their their actual excitement and their budget for the back end. Though I mean it must be, have been a pretty high budget movie because this ship is creepy as heck. Yeah. Uh and well, like they, it's because it's, it's an actual derelict ship. So when you said yeah. this looks like a mir- uh, a miserable shoot, it was people got <laughs> sick. There was like there was no heating and they were shooting like in the middle of March in like I think just outside Alabama. Of, I yeah, think. Alabama. Yeah, oh. so it was still like it was cold and uncomfortable and um and the ship apparently wasn't seaworthy, so they had to shoot almost all of it in dry dock, which probably safer, not a yes. bad thing. I mean, it looks not seaworthy. It looks like they did not dress this set. It looks like no. they came aboard an actual derelict Nazi yeah. ship. The cobwebs are just cobwebs. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. The water actually yeah. runs brown. Like that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's there's a review that's like, did they just put industrial waste on Richard Grant? <laughs> like, like, they're like, it looks like they just opened up whatever was left in the ship and poured it all over. Oh, God, that that seems pretty gross, too. Like, and like, extend like it's, I was like, when is yeah. this gonna end? I have to stop looking. I, at yeah, it. I mean that's there's a lot. Yeah, they really hit the stuff hard, and it's weird. And like these children are being really traumatized by dead bodies. But the thing I do really like is that like I believed the parents were actually trying to protect yes. the kids, which yeah, I yeah. do, and like stop them from seeing some like the more really horrible stuff, like the freezer mm-hmm. full of bodies on hooks. Like that was, ooh, yes. which look real. Like that was like, ugh. Most of the um, characters are pretty cohesive and make sense. And, and it's good actors throughout too because like you talked about Kay Reed. God, but like Reed. this is one of the only, there's only a handful of on-screen appearances by Sally Ann Howes, which people know from Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. And uh, she she was mostly a theatrical actress. And pretty much after Death Ship goes like, movies suck. <laughs> and then leaves <laughs> uh, movies forever. Uh, yeah, so she's the mom. And it's like, yeah, it's, it's weird. I, I don't know. It's weird. But you hear it a lot in the reviews that are kind of nice about it. Like even the guy freaking out about there's like a magical movie that's playing Nazi propaganda and they're like it doesn't it doesn't make any sense because they're like they unplug a projector uh, he tears down a screen and there's another screen like just they're like the scene doesn't make any sense but the way he's freaking out hits so hard yeah. and so real yeah. that you're like this is disturbing <laughs> genuinely disturbing oh the part yeah. that bothered me the most and I need this to be a general PSA is that if mm-hmm. someone pulls a small bowl of misshapen gold orbs out of a drawer they are teeth do not Ooh. touch them <laughs> like that yes. should be your especially first when you're in a Nazi area don't touch any gold don't, don't touch anything no. just no. just put no. it all down I, I can't uh, but yeah, there's, there's, it's interesting. And I mean, I also know just from Hollywood Suite, we, when we got this movie uh, fairly recently, that people were very excited for it. I think partially because it was a staple of Canadian um, cable. Yeah. So I think a lot of people had seen this movie. And I got to assume that if you saw this movie, <laughs> it, it drilled in your mind. You're always remembering the woman in the blood shower or or Kate Reed just suddenly being covered in weird boils and like, yeah. It's, yeah, it's or just the torture film. device at the end. It's funny, I just recently watched um, uh, the Ouija board Origins of Evil because someone oh, yeah. was like, you should see that one. And that bad. has a lot, it's not, it isn't, it isn't bad at all. Yeah. That has a lot of echoes of this in that in terms mm-hmm. of the disturbing Nazi stuff where it was like, oh, okay, this is still, still effective. I and mean, there's yeah. a reason why they did it. Which is interesting to me, this 
this isn't the first Nazi ghost ship movie. There's another <laughs> one called Shockwaves in 1977 yes. where there's I mean, like those Nazi are ghost Nazi zombies. zombies. Yes. Yeah, similar that one, thing. That one's been reclaimed, and I I don't buy it. I find it a very slow film, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but it, it was the first. And I'm also fascinated that they. I mean, they have this interesting. Uh, like Nazi concept, but they go out of their way and they kill uh, Canada's favorite super Jew, Saul Rubinek, almost immediately. Yes. And so there's not really the tension between Jewish people and the Nazis, which yes. could be there. That's so interesting. Yeah. Which is maybe a good idea because it's so disturbing that maybe you don't want to be having a, have a Jew fighting them. But nowadays, you definitely would do that. Oh, you t- yeah. Nowadays, when you have Nazi monsters, you tend to have a cool Jew that's murdering them. Yeah, <laughs> that like is true. the bear Jew in um, Inglorious yeah. Bastards or whatever. Yeah, yeah. You know? But yes, I was so sad. I th- Number one, I just have to bring like a horny vibe to any uh, thing that I do. <laughs> but I found him cute. And I was like, I was like, oh, Saul yeah. Rubinek, sure. <laughs> Like, it's just it. because he's a cruise host. That's why you're I all about know. the MCs and the ruffled tuxedos. I don't yeah. know the whole. I will say that whole like opening with the party, like like you said, it did echo like Poseidon Adventure. But like I was into that too. I was like more more of this vibe. Yeah. We got we got this got cut off a little bit too quickly. Like maybe <laughs> should have stayed there a little bit longer and then gone to the ship instead of Are them you like a lingering. Love boat fan? Is that what this is? You <laughs> no. know, you can just go watch the love boat. <laughs> I mean, I kind <laughs> okay. of do want like uh, just a slash on a functioning cruise ship yes! now. Like, yeah, why, why hasn't that happened? Has that yeah, happened? Why are we always obsessed with these ships crashing? <laughs> Just have the I cruise going on. Because that's and... genuinely terrifying and something yeah. that actually happens. I don't know. Maybe you can't do a cruise ship movie. Yeah, there a, are a lot of cruise ship murders. Like, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I don't um, know. I'm so fascinated either. by this. But I would love to see, like, I, like I'm telling you, like anytime there is a boat and there's a horror <laughs> element, I'm interested. Like I remember there was like the triangle. It was like a TNT movie with Luke Perry that I tried to seek out when I was 12 years old. You know what I mean? Like, this is <laughs> this is a source of interest for me, and I think there's others that would be interested. So, let's Death Ship 2. Like, sure. bring I mean, yeah, yeah. Yes. We probably have to find there's probably some old Canadian man who has the rights who's, who will happily let you remake Death Ship. Maybe that's what I have to do. Maybe I need to channel yeah. the spirit of Deborah Hill and produce Death Ship <laughs> 2. <laughs> <laughs> oh, have you guys seen Spider Baby or Bloodbath or Pit yes. Stop? Yes. Oh, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. Spider Baby is number one. Uh, full recommend. I, I think Spider Baby is both Jack Hill's greatest movie, and I also think it's a wonderful um, horror comedy that's that's kind of overlooked, partially because I think it's in Wright's Hell and is kind of public domain. Have you seen that, Emily, Spider Baby? Yeah, I've seen that, but I haven't seen the other ones. Um, but mm. I feel like in general, there's just so many like weird Canadian like horror movies that I feel like, well, like in Canada we appreciate, but I don't know if like the wider horror community appreciates True. because like I don't, I've never heard anybody, I, I, I hadn't heard of Death Ship until like we got it at Hollywood Suite. I'd never heard about it. And I feel like that's a shame because like we got away with some weird stuff aside from Cronenberg, you know, who I think people want to peg that mm. on. But like we do some weird like Spider Babies. That's it's weird. Spider Baby is, I will say, American, but it's a very Canadian oh, sorry. style. Yeah. It's, it's just from the same writer. Yeah, yeah, Jack yeah. Hill. Uh, but yeah, it is. It's like a cheap L.A. production, which is very... Um, yeah, Jack Hill actually, and he lost a lot of the credit on this movie uh, via tax shelter necessity. Well, because he was hiding. Yeah, yeah, but he's also pretty like known for like doing more like 
feminist kind of. Yes, he's a uh, he's pretty much the Pam Greer guy. Yeah, he did uh, a lot of her black exploitation films. Yeah. 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 yeah, that's kind of his. So yeah, I mean, I guess this movie has kind of the wife is kind of a feminist question mark. I, I, I don't, don't think so. I, I don't, don't know. So. There was some weird, weird gender stuff with also the kids where I was like, this, mm, this, true. the kid, the boy keeps peeing like he's got to go to the bathroom. <laughs> also, we're saying the uh, uh, the person who they tell you that's a thing. They pee constantly <laughs> in horror movies. They should be peeing more. <laughs> uh, I also like that the the woman who plays the little girl, her photo is the little girl in, in uh. Death Ship. So people obviously have some love for Death Ship. Uh, but yeah, no, I, so Jack Hill wrote this. Uh, he wanted to direct it, but for Canadian Tax Shelter, it, they made the deal to essentially make it a Canadian film. And he had to, uh, and it's interesting because it seems like maybe they just for tax purposes said other people wrote it, but it's pretty much his script. And then Becky, you were pointing out that Alvin Rakoff is a British director who kind of only, he, he's mostly known for TV and theater in the UK. And he kind of only came over and did a bunch of movies in so Canada during the tax shelter. So he was born in Toronto. Yes. So that's he is why. Canadian. So he is Canadian, Techni- so that's good yes, enough for the Yes, by a technicality. Yeah. But, and it also seems like he actually went to England as a, a, an adult and made his career there. But yeah, I, the interesting thing is I think, like as much as I might say that this movie is a little iffy all over the place. Alvin Rakoff has a, a film that we have on Hollywood Suite as well called City on Fire. Which I've which heard is, is excellent. So excellent. And is very much the same, where essentially he was given a bunch of footage of explosions. <laughs> There's so much explosion <laughs> footage. Uh, and he made a disaster movie around it starring Leslie Nielsen. And uh, it, it's very in the vein of 70s stuff. But I would say it's up there with, I mean, obviously Poseidon Adventure is like, is a movie that deserves Oscars and things, but it's up there with the best of the corny, uh, like, disaster movies. It's much better than, like, The Swarm or The Bridge. When that, that one really went off the end, I, I think that City on Fire is a wonderful, fun movie. So I think he really knows what he's doing. And it's interesting because he is a, he's kind of a bougier director. Like, he, he's a fancy theater director and his, his British movies are quite fancy. So he really took this kind of stuff on with gusto. But that's the 80s, me. though, unfortunately, in Canada, is that there was nothing else to make. You make, you know, horror movies or you make softcore porn, and those are really your two choices. Or you work for the NFB and you're making documentaries. Yeah, yeah. So, I, I don't know. It's interesting. And I mean, they, like, any moderate, modern review is kind of saying that, like, yeah, Jack Hill's involved, but it's all kind of tax purposes. I'm sure Ra- Rakoff was, like, just they brought him in for tax purposes. It probably wasn't a movie he was very passionate about making. But, yeah, it's, like, what they do with it. And, and I saw... Um, a modern review saying that they were shouting at the editor, Mike Campbell, because they're like, part of what makes this movie work so well is there's like a ton, a ton of B-roll footage of this ship just operating and being grimy. And they were saying that it, like, essentially Mike Campbell and Ivor Slanny, who did the score, which is like synth, they're like, they worked very well together because so much of the mood is actually just B-roll of the ship functioning and the score being creepy. Which is like, yeah, I guess that is. That's kind of a trick. <laughs> and yeah, like, and, but it, it works, which is which is wild. The other thing I want to point out here that I don't think is phoned in that I think is done incredibly well is the stunts. There's some real solid stunts in here on this on this boat, and sure. I'm such a like practical stunt fan because you don't get to see them very often. But yeah, when they're killing Sal uh, Sal Rubinek with like the where it's like he's dangling from <laughs> like the crane and yeah, yeah, and they're dropping him over and like that's a that doesn't look like a dummy to me. It's moving, so it looks no. like they've got an actual stunt person. Up and there worth doing that saying stunt. that they should have been able to save Sol Rubinek. I don't know why they let him die. <laughs> R.I.P. Sal. Like, R.I.P. Yeah. 
He's probably glad he didn't survive to meet the Nazi (laughs) ghosts, to be fair. He didn't have to spend that much time. That's good. Well, the ship wants blood. So, yes, I I don't know, like, how many people I'm going to recommend Death Ship to, but I do think it's like a fun oddity. And I'm glad that I watched it. Um, But it it does just make me crave more. It just makes me crave more. I'm I'm waiting for the uh, cruise ship horror movie of my dreams to come out. Yeah, then you have to make it yourself. If you build it, they will come and be slaughtered. So Emily, okay. get on it. I'm working <laughs> All right. on it. <laughs> and that having been said, Emily Gagne, thank you so much for joining us once again on the show. Thank you for having me. This was a delight. And to be part of Shocktober, I'm so honored. Well, it's a pleasure. And uh, you should probably tell uh, people how they can hear more of your work. Yeah. Um, uh, I co-host We Really Like Her, which is a podcast about women in film. Uh, we're currently doing a mini series called Fonda Vision, which is about the movies of Jane Fonda. Uh, so you can check that out. Jane doesn't have a lot of horror movies on her uh, docket, but there are a couple. So, And I think Clute kind of like is a thriller. Clute's on the line. So yeah. we can, yep. Yeah, and we've done an episode on that, so you can listen to that. Uh, but yeah, we uh, also have a screening series at the Review Cinema in Toronto, if you are around. Um, and uh, we screen movies that are directed and written by women. Fantastic. And Cameron Maitland, thank you once again for joining us and uh, having a spooky good time. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I love the horror. And yeah, I will say that if you ever get the chance to watch The Fog in a theater, that's it's a great theatrical film. The kind of quietness of it works very well. Oh, I am so into it. I can't wait to get back into theaters where I can do that. It's going to be glorious. All right. And you can join us next week where Alicia and I may or may not burst over our mutual love of Kurt Russell. It's used cars and the stuntman coming up next week. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the A Year in Film podcast from Hollywood Suite. If you enjoy the show, please remember to rate and review us on your podcast platform. Want to email the podcast? You can do so at podcast at hollywoodsuite.ca. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Hollywood Suite. Hollywood Suite is the home of the movies that shaped the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Always uncut and always commercial-free, Hollywood Suite lets you experience movies the way they were meant to be seen on four HD channels and Hollywood Suite On Demand. Subscribe today at hollywoodsuite.ca. The A Year in Film podcast is hosted by Becky Shrimpton and produced by Becky Shrimpton, Alicia Fletcher, and Cameron Maitland and featured Cameron Maitland and Emily Gagne as guests. Supervising producer is Ryan Maines. Executive producers are David Kynes and Julie Kumaria. Creative consultant is Emily Gagne. Audio engineering by Andy Reid. We'll see you next week. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.